What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Full Stack Whatever. I am your host, Mike Lomans, and today I'm talking with Noah Levin. Noah is currently the VP of Design at Figma. We talk about his path into design from high school to Carnegie Mellon to Google and discovered some great anecdotes and stories along the way. Beyond that, we talked about Figma, about hiring and growing teams, and about some of our other favorite parts of design leadership. Here is episode 42, a tool that creates tools. Hey, Noah. Hey. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your recent wedding. Thank you. I'm really excited. We go way back to the Framer days, the the pre 1.0 Framer days. Oh even my God. it's probably like ten years ago. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying. Yeah, I think that's about right. We were reminiscing before we started recording that there was like kind of a group of OGs, like George Kettenberg was in there, yep. T Show was in there, Jemray was in there. We have this little Facebook group. Yep. That's still alive, actually. But Is it? Like, oh, wow. It's not. alive, but I think I had to mute it because like, it's unmoderated now. So there's <laughs> just a bunch of random shit happening. No, that was um, fun times. You are probably now most well-known as the VP of Design at Figma. You've had a great couple of roles before this. And so how did you get into design? Oh, man. <laughs> probably in like middle school, I was one of the sort of like GeoCities Pokemon signatures and Photoshop, deviant art was for sure like a big hobby. And I had no idea what I was doing, but it was so fun. Like that's just kind of how it probably started was like making weird art stuff on the internet um, with these funny tools. Also, I don't know if you knew homestead.com. It was like a GeoCities kind of thing. And I think it was just like, I don't know, it was fun. It was fun to make things. It was fun to get people's reactions when they look at them or try them or whatever it was. There were these like, I don't know if you remember these collabs or whatever, where you would send like a Photoshop file to someone and they would like, not quite like Photoshop tennis, but similar. They would mm-hmm. evolve it into a different art piece. And you didn't even know who this person was. They were mm-hmm. somewhere else in the world. And I don't know, that stuff was really fun. So really that world led me into continuing that hobby until eventually you had to pick where to go to university and ended up finding Carnegie Mellon where I grew up in Pittsburgh near there. And that kind of really kickstarted, I feel like, a lot of my career. I am... Actually, just realizing that this is the first time DeviantArt has been mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> which I'm honored to break the seal for that one. That yeah. is quite a fun old flash on the past. It's still around, I think, actually, but I have no idea what it's doing. Do you remember toadvanced.com? Like they always had these crazy flash websites that would like they would load up and they would be like these <laughs> it would be like 20 seconds of animations and like Totally, totally. I used to try to make them. I feel like they were never great, but they were always super fun to like, just, I don't know. Your goal was just to make the most ridiculous and sci-fi looking thing you could. Yeah, Yeah, like the the shape would grow and then it would blink a couple times white and then the content (laughs) would fade in or something like that. So, okay, so you got to CMU. There's a lot of folks that you still know from there that kind of are all over the tech sphere nowadays. Yeah. You, you've kind of rolled into this because this is what's your interest, like the proximity to the college also helped. What was kind of your realization that you wanted to do this for a job? Because my guess is like a lot of folks still in college when they do the thing that like seems close to them, it's well, do I want to do this for a job? Is there like, does this even make sense as a career, etc.? Did you kind of fall into it full well knowing that this is what you wanted to do? Or was there just a a moment during college that you were like, oh, yeah, this is it? Yeah, I think there was a little bit of a fork in the road even in high school where I was really into musical theater. And 
I remember explicitly when looking for schools that I wanted a school that also had a theater program just in case that's the route that I wanted to go. And so every school I applied to had inevitably either a club that seemed like a lot of fun for doing theater or even a major. And so there was sort of that, do I go that route or the computers route? And I think, you know, as anyone will tell you, it's really hard to go the route of performance and theater stuff and figured at some point early on in college when I did one show the first year, that was going to be a hobby. That was going to be something that was harder to build a life from. But I don't think I knew that there was like a job future in what I was doing because it wasn't like, I didn't really, I don't think I knew what like UX design was even at the time. It was just, you would take, my major was called information systems, which was this like really vague, like you take a little bit of everything. You take humanities classes, you take some programming classes, but you still don't really know what you're doing. You're just kind of like, I don't know. These are kind of interesting things to learn. It wasn't until really projects started happening that it felt more real. And I remember, you know, classmates who were like building, you know, kind of apps or were like even random, like hosting companies, just different kinds of stuff. And you would tag along with them and ask them what they were doing and maybe jam with them for a bit and be like, whoa, like they're making money on the side doing this. And so I think when I started like freelancing a little bit too on the side and feeling like, whoa, okay, this is like something people actually need. Like there's a demand for this. So I think it took a bit until like freshman or sophomore year until I realized like this could actually be what I do. But of course, then you're not really thinking that far out. You're just kind of taking it day by day and trying things and seeing where it goes. So I think it was probably some point around the time where I realized that doing projects with other people was super fun. (laughs) Because like, you know, there's the one thing where you're in high school doing something on your own and feeling, oh, this is kind of neat, but it kind of comes to life when you're with other people. I feel like that's probably when something clicked a little bit where I was like, oh, this is fun. This is something that we can really like jam on together and see where it goes. There's something interesting probably about the timing of that as well, where, you know, the UX designer title probably was around, but it wasn't really something that was thrown around in schools yet because there wasn't really that much education for it. And then the product designer title that kind of came around 2010, 11, probably. Yeah, yeah. And so this was, right. So freshman year for me would have been like 2006 or something. And I remember every year there were, you would watch the graduates of the university like go to take a job somewhere. And, and I think it was probably closer when I was in junior year when people started getting jobs at Google or Facebook. And Facebook was probably just, you know, on its earlier days and being like, whoa, like that's really cool. Like I used that thing, or at least, you know, certainly Google a lot more at the time. Well, that would be wild to think that someone could work there. And so I think, you know, that's kind of also where you get clues is where you see like the people coming into the, you know, industry and what they're ending up doing and hopefully getting to talk to them a bit and being like, whoa, what's that like? Is it fun? And so that, yeah, definitely started opening up some doors or at least like what it would look like. Mm -hmm. It seems that CMU is also a bit of a feeder school to the Bay Area. Was Google like one of the places where a lot of folks would go? And, it was like and Facebook yeah, a couple and, per year. Yeah. And it yeah. would be pretty spread out. You'd, but also, I guess at the time, even like PNC Bank was like a local bank that would also hire some people. There was like consultancies for sure. Salesforce, I think, recruited mm-hmm. a bunch. I don't know. It's kind of a little all over the place. Oh, agencies too, actually, like yeah, RGA and other stuff like that. So it was kind of all over the map. And the funny thing about CMU also is it's not like it's a feeder in the sense that everyone's in the same program and then they go to the same place. Mm. It's really a collection of like tons of different majors that people are taking. And so all over the map, you know, you'd have like industrial designers, you mm-hmm. know, I think Austin Bales went, you know, started in that route and, you know, or graphic designers or, you know, Maybe you studied psychology. So it's kind of like all over the map. It wasn't like one path, which I think was interesting too. Yeah. It's actually, there's an, there's a question that I realize I haven't asked anyone on the show, which is, so when there isn't a one-to-one relationship really with 
okay, I'm going to do this like in industrial design course and now I'm going to be an industrial designer. But there's actually the outcomes are like so like widely split mm-hmm. and it there's less archetypes like of folks in your school when you see the majors so far spread out. What do you think the top lessons were for you at CMU? I I feel like, you know, I alluded to this a little bit, but the projects were typically where I felt like I learned the most. And also just like meeting smart, interesting people and jamming with them. And I feel like even more so than any class I ever took or any teacher who like was particularly memorable, it was really just making things with interesting people from different backgrounds. And I think that ended up being extremely valuable, like learning how to work on a project with a team. And so the most helpful parts of the program were like, you know, when I, toward the end of my time there, we got assigned a project with NASA. And that was a huge deal for like, all of us were just, you know, blown away that this could even happen. And then each of us had really unique angles they wanted us to play. And I remember I was assigned the like documentation person and there was like a design person, there was a developer person, like a product manager. And I think I didn't know really what these different titles would mean, but and I remember also at the time being like disappointed. Oh, what is documentation? What is that? There's not really, it's funny to think now, there's no one who's really responsible for that. But actually, funny enough, it's a huge part of my job these days is documenting what we do and communicating well. And I think I ended up really enjoying that more than I expected. And what that meant for us at, at the, for that project was like, you know, you had to document your process and what you were trying to build together. And that, yeah, it was more fun than I expected, I think. Because, you know, we were doing lots of interesting things. We built like a, you know, a cuff-mounted... Android tablet for astronauts to like use for space missions, which was just wild to even be thinking about that. And I certainly didn't know the first thing about Arduinos and like things that you would be building, but someone on the team did. And I think that was kind of neat to be like, whoa, like you can work with these different people who have totally different skill sets and make magic with them and see something come to life from that. And I thought that was just kind of neat, you know, and such a fun thing to get to do even today or whenever is get to work with people who have different perspectives than you, different skills. So that really, I think, kind of landed for me. I think, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other lessons, but that's a big one for sure. And so you eventually graduated. What was your first step into your professional career? Yeah, so something kind of interesting happened at the end of the NASA project. A lot, like there were a team of five or six of us, and we had all had the opportunity to stay on. And it was kind of a mind-blowing thing to think, wow, what an opportunity right out of school to do that. And none of us took the job <laughs> of six people. And I don't think I totally realized it at the time, maybe, but I think, you know, believe it or not, like it was kind of a, a surprisingly kind of slow paced, at, at least at the time, you know, place to work. And I think a lot of us were really hungry and excited and we wanted to make things and see people use our things and not have 10 or 20 or 30 year arcs like you would maybe in space like oriented projects to, to see them become real. And so I got very lucky when I was out in Mountain View, which is where the NASA base was to get an interview at Google. And that's where I started my career. And when you're interviewing, at least at the time at a big company, you don't know what project, what team, whatever, until after you accept the offer, at least then. And I remember getting the call that was like, you're going to work on search. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. I'm like 22 years old or something. Like I, I can't, what? That was just kind of mind blowing to me. And I was also terrified, but that's really where things started. I feel when you spend a uh significant amount of time at a company there's very various different eras that you go through where like a certain realization gives you this escape velocity into a next mental model of like your career what were some of the like key moments for you at google yeah 
probably the most memorable was for the first six months, I think I was working on odds and ends, kind of small projects here and there. But it's, at a certain point, they gave me this project to work on uh, the, the iOS app, the Google app, which I didn't really know what it was. I think at the time, I had, Chrome was just starting to come out. And I was like, why do you need a Google app? Don't you have a browser to find stuff? And it was a really wonderful opportunity because they didn't have a designer at the team at the time. They had ones before but the product had ebbed and flowed. Mobile was still kind of becoming more popular. And they also, Bing had released like a tablet app, actually. I think the iPad maybe had just come out. And, you know, as lots of big companies do, they're looking to competition. They're like, oh, like they made this amazing app. We have to make one. So, you know, right out of college, I'm getting assigned, actually, I think it was the tablet app first. And, uh, and I was, you know, there's lots we can go into there. But the thing I'll highlight that really kind of stuck with me is I remember designing a bunch, you know, sitting down thinking, what is this for? Who needs this? What am I trying to do? Mm -hmm. And I would, and this engineer, Dan, kept sitting next to me as I was working. And I, at first I was kind of bothered. I was like, why are you you're an engineer? Why are you next? I'm designing. Let me do my thing. Mm -hmm. Let me, I don't know, create something interesting. And he kept asking me questions. You know, he'd be like, well, what's that for? What are you trying to do here? What's your goal with this? And I, and it took me a bit to realize, you know, at first, again, I was thinking, well, this is my job. Why is this engineer like trying to participate in this process? And I had no idea that it turns out like that would become probably the most helpful thing I could think of at that time to have someone who actually had a lot of depth in industry. This person worked at Apple before and had a really good design sense. And just because they had the title engineer, I just didn't assume that would be the case. But sure enough, every time he would sit next to me, because we even sat weirdly in like different places, eventually he's like, you should just move your desk near me. We're working, you know, I keep coming here. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I should. And, and sure enough, every idea or thing he would ask me made things better. Like the thing I was stuck on, he would help me get unstuck. And I think I came to Google thinking that was going to happen with my design peers and that my job was going to be to grow as this like design community, something or other. But actually like the engineering partnerships really were what taught me the most at that time. And at Google at, at that time too, like it was actually pretty common for designers to sit in separate spaces. There were like the studio team and they would be somewhere else. And I remember learning through Dan that the, at least building a perspective that better products would happen if your whole team is excited about what you're doing and if you're not just coming over the wall with a huge pitch. And so I think that was incredible to have this experience where it was actually kind of nice at the time that there were no other designers on that project so that most of my time would be with these engineers making things better. And it was so helpful, you know, because it removed a bit of the ego from it, like where, you know, I was thinking that was supposed to be my responsibility and shifted it into like, we're a team and this team mm -hmm. is going to make things. And we're going to try to make something you know, memorable and, and good from it. And that really stuck with me. And I remember as I grew in my career at Google, I had lots of different kinds of opportunities show up. And I stayed with that team for like almost four years. <laughs> and it grew a lot and the product grew. But I really stayed because I just loved that collaboration. And I loved how it was working. And I saw the way that some other teams were working in these design center models, which seemed also exciting. But I just felt like there was something really special happening. And it worked out really well for me. I mean, they, they helped me and allowed me to be a manager and grow a team and do all kinds of stuff. And I'm really thankful, you know, for Dan for teaching me so much about what a real collaborative process actually can look like. It, it seems that um, this collaboration between design and engineering is kind of this thin red line that runs throughout your career. I mentioned, you know, we met kind of in the framer days, like through that medium, which is which was at the time at the intersection of that. I think it was like the coffee script days yeah. where there wasn't a dedicated editor for it. No, and it was just, just like, like yeah, refresh the browser. library, basically. Yeah. yeah. At a certain point, there was hot reloading. Yeah. <laughs> but like that, and that was like a big deal. It was magical. <laughs> that you didn't yeah. have to like command R your browser. <laughs> there was also the time when we went from 
non-hardware accelerated to hardware accelerated and all of the prototypes, all the timings of things had changed because it was on the GPU now and like the clock mm-hmm. on the GPU was way faster. And so like you had to go and change all these tolerances on like mm-hmm. spring curves and stuff. Totally. Um, oh, the good old days. <laughs> so eventually you went from Google to ClassPass and then you went to Figma. Mm-hmm. I'd love to kind of dig into ClassPass a bit because that one seems maybe like the odd one out in this <laughs> kind of you know maker relationship between kind of design and engineering and that collaboration. Mm. And it seems to be more on the path of you growing as like a leader. Mm-hmm. Why did you eventually decide to leave Google and you know take an opportunity like this? And what was your logic here? And then what kind of lessons did you take away from that? Yeah, I think it was probably yeah almost at the I don't know four and a half year mark or something at Google where I was starting to kind of think about new things. And new things could have meant at different teams at Google or could have meant somewhere else. And I think I had a moment where I, you know, I don't know if I was talking to a friend and they were like, well, when you want, when you look back at your life, like what kinds of things do you want to be thinking about? And I think I had seen, you know, this future version of myself that could have stayed there probably indefinitely. You know, it's a you know, company that continues to do well. And I think I just, I craved different things. I was too curious to want to stay at the same place. And so at some point, not even knowing where I would go, I just kind of left the company, you know, and let myself just kind of figure out uh, what what would be interesting. And I, I had also decided I wanted to live in New York. And so I actually moved to New York without a job and started kind of looking at what could make sense. And I also didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to be a manager because I had just, I was probably like maybe a year and a half, two years into managing at Google by the time I left. I knew I still liked making things. I was doing a bunch of stuff with Framer and and really enjoying that. And and as I looked for jobs, I don't even remember how the class pass opportunity actually came up originally, but I, I've always loved fitness. And I think I started sitting down and like writing, what are the things that I love and what are the things and how can I bring that into my work? You know, in a way I had already sort of moved on from like musical theater and I was like, well, what else can I incorporate of things that I enjoy? And I also at the time was thinking like, I was just kind of even then kind of addicted to screens and I wanted to work on something that wasn't about screen time as much. Not to say that's what Google search was about, but I still just, it led me at least away from opportunities where I felt that's what I would be doing. And uh, Braden Coetz, who is uh, an advisor at Google Ventures, was in-house uh, helping temporarily ClassPass find a new leader. And so I think I probably found it through him. And I started, I hadn't actually been a user of ClassPass though. I just knew that it was fitness related. And so I started taking classes and I hadn't even taken fitness classes much before. I'd taken, I don't know, maybe I went to one yoga class, but I remember that week as I was like starting to talk to them, I booked a different class every day just to see what it would feel like. And I remember leaving each class being like, wow, that was cool. Like I felt so alive. I felt like you're in this group of people exercising. And I was like, this is exciting. This is, I want to be a part of this, like whatever this is. Every class, you name it, I would take it. It was a Pilates class. It was a running class. They had like trampoline classes. They had all kinds of funny stuff and, you know, cycling and things I'd never tried. And I felt like it, it kind of, you know, also at this time I was in New York, I was intimidated. I was scared. I didn't have that many friends there. And it kind of made me feel like a part of something to be like in a group of people who I even didn't know. So for a lot of reasons, I think it helped me settle into to New York thinking about it that way to have that. And so I got lucky enough to get that job and uh, it was a pretty small team and it, it was a hugely different experience than Google. Could not be more different. And it was really hard. And I think I almost quit in my first three or six months, if I'm totally honest, because it was so different. You know, I was used to having all of the resources in the world and you really couldn't mess up Google. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you, you felt like you, you had all this armor on or whatever. And here was this startup that was kind of just starting to take off, but 
you know, there was actually, yeah, it was, I think it was like 180 people at the company at the time, but I was, you know, tasked with leading this design team. And that was kind of scary. It's low. I could actually, I could break this thing maybe potentially, or it just felt like a lot more responsibility. And so I don't think I knew at the time that's like what I wanted. I think I was just more like these classes are fun and I like that it's not about screens. Like our job was to get you off of your phone and into a class. And I kind of loved that. But yeah, oh, wow, was it different? It was a totally, but really helpful, right? Because I don't think I knew anything, you know, it's always a lifelong, you know, journey of learning. But I really, it was a wake up call about how much I didn't know about managing, about, you know, helping lead a team. And I'll be honest, there were definitely times where I was like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. I think I might just want to go back to building. But, you know, I stuck it out and and really learned a ton in nearly two years there. And uh, I'm really grateful for that too. What was your biggest kind of self-identified fuck up? (laughs) Oh my God, were there many? There were so many. I definitely was, because also I hadn't really, I enjoyed building things so much. I was, while I think it's always a balance in management about how hands-on you should be, I was way too hands-on. I was like making prototypes way more than I should have been instead of focusing on hiring or other things that they needed from me. And I think that wasn't helping my team too. Like they were feeling, you know, like, why is he, you know, I don't know, like either redoing this work or something like that. And so there's some stuff there for sure where I, I don't think I was leaning into the right places at all. And what else were some big lessons? I do think there's always a trade-off of like, how do you figure out, you know, what's sort of best for the team and, and what they're sort of asking for and what they want. So there might've been some stuff there. I'm trying to think what else. There were so many mistakes. I didn't, you know, I, when you're a really small team, you're five people, you know, you don't really have a career ladder or anything for anyone. And I think people, you know, rightfully so, like kind of, you know, you often want some of that and you're trying to figure out, okay, can I, how much can I like spend time doing that? We also need to ship all these other things. And I think that those trade-offs were hard and I kind of just said yes to everything. And so I think that would be the other lesson I learned is just don't say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. I just felt, I don't know, I wanted to do right by everyone. I wanted to make the team happy. I wanted them to like me. And I wanted all of those things at the expense of focusing or at the expense of doing something clearer and instead doing everything kind of poorly. So I definitely feel badly for anyone I was managing in that stage of my career in a way. But I also think I learned a lot from them. You know, I remember having a one-on-one uh, with someone on the team and they had sort of said, you know, Noah, like you keep trying to problem solve with me. And I want you to know that I actually don't need that from you right now. I actually just want you to let me kind of vent or let me just talk this through. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge management lesson for me where I hadn't realized that was an option. <laughs> like in my head, I was supposed to always be debugging or helping, but I, I didn't realize that can actually be a little kind of cloudy or blocking for someone when they're trying to wrestle through a problem. And it's also a huge life, life partnership. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I'm week two into marriage here and I'm definitely <laughs> going to continue these lessons. Yeah, so I think there was something really helpful. I'm really grateful for that person, Maureen, for teaching me that. And so I've since even still, like I'll ask people early in a conversation of a problem, like, hey, by the way, like, like are we working on this together, like problem solving, mm-hmm. or is this a moment where I should actually just listen? Half the time, the answer is, I just want you to listen and that's it. Yeah. And that's really cool. Like to just realize, oh, wow. And it's actually a relief for both of you because it's mm-hmm. stressful also as a manager to be like, oh, am I helping them? Is this, is this, am I going to have the right answer? What if I give them the wrong answer? But instead, sometimes just simply listening and having someone work through a problem on their own and still giving, you know, if, it's, if it makes sense, some level of guidance. But 
that I don't think I had realized was it is an was an option or was like a trade off you could have as a manager. So I think that was definitely another of many lessons I learned there. Yeah, there's some interesting parallels between our paths, trying to like do as best as possible with with kind of limited resources. And one of the things that that I definitely came away with was that in my time at Facebook, the one on ones were relatively casual. Like you would be walking around the courtyard, you would be but you would be digging through a lot of stuff and it would kind of automatically happen because the manual of like how we work, we don't have a hard process, but <laughs> our ways of thinking are like we're programmed over time mm-hmm. through the Kool-Aid of, of how this goes. And so those were very effective. And then I found that that doesn't immediately transform like that way of working and like what you take away out of meetings and what you think people will implicitly bring to your one-on-ones is different. And then all of a sudden you have to you know, steer these conversations a lot more. And you mm-hmm. have to like ask a lot more probing questions mm-hmm. to get that stuff out of folks that you, you know, that bias towards action or like the digging deeper. And yeah, I found that to be one of the big ones. And it's over. interesting too, right? Because you're trying to build a playbook for yourself a little bit of like, how do I want to operate in these one-on-ones? And so it probably at that moment, I was like, oh, okay, my job is to listen and that's it. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, it's actually more complicated than that. That's not always the only thing you can rely on. Instead, you're really building a bunch of different tools that are going to be useful at different times for different reasons. And so it's more, it's less that I had to totally reorient my job around just that, but more that, oh, here's another new tool or here's another new like mm-hmm. way to approach a one-on-one. And then you were saying walking one-on-ones and it reminded me, and at the time that was what we were doing too in New York. And then fast forward all these, you know, to the beginning of the pandemic where you couldn't go on walking one-on-ones anymore. You kind of could if you jumped on a phone call, but and then you're st- you're shifting your tactics again. You're shifting what you can do, and you know I feel like we're always evolving our methods as you know either people leaders or or just like partners or whatever. I've always been a big believer in keeping a very open mind about like the way you can work and like never getting too comfortable in one exact playbook. And I think that definitely has been helpful given the different journeys and chapters my career has taken. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the getting in the weeds part of it. Mm. I think we're we're in a really interesting kind of like time right now, like timing wise. So one, I feel kind of that post Facebook, like staying away from the work a lot and like setting up your people well mm-hmm. and, and empowering them and finding that in an in a startup environment where there's a different bar for talent mm-hmm. and there's like the patience that you have at a big company that you actually kind of need to unprogram yourself from because you need to kind of jump in sometimes, but then you don't want to jump in because you don't want to be the micromanager. <laughs> there's that side of the fence, which I think we have a lot of parallels in. But then there's another piece where I think it was roughly like two weeks ago where I think it's gone around quite a, a lot now. There's this PM podcast called Lenny's Podcast. Brian Chesky was on this podcast. Mm, yeah. And one of the things that he pointed out, which was like a little bit of a more in-depth version of what he spoke about at Config is like mm-hmm. how close he gets to the work right mm-hmm. now and how that is like one of his main responsibilities that he self-perceives. Mm-hmm. Throughout your time at Google, ClassPass, now Figma, how have you kind of vacillated between these getting close to the work, not being that close to the work? Like, how do you look at that now? Yeah. Oh, great topic. And I've definitely, I think, moved closer a little bit to that philosophy of getting close to the work isn't actually always micromanaging. It's actually helping. It's something that oftentimes people are even craving. Not everyone wants to be completely alone in their work and what they're doing. And I also think, especially when you're at a larger company, but even at five people, I felt this, you know, he kept reusing the quote, I think, in that podcast, like rowing in the same direction. And 
and it's interesting because you can you contrast that with Google's philosophy, right? They, you know, the founders went to Montessori schools and talked a lot about let people do what they're best at and just let them go in whatever direction makes sense. And I think it's interesting, right? Because I think neither of these are objectively wrong approaches. Like both of them have a lot of merit to them, right? Because on the side of letting people do what they're best at, there was something beautiful about how different Google teams worked completely differently. It was very much not a top-down company. But there was also huge problems where you would have eight or 10 teams working on the exact same problem and not even talking to each other or feeling incentivized to. So I definitely believe that you have to have a point of view as a leader a bit to help people. You have to help people row in the same direction. You often have to get into the weeds if work is coming, even just from a range of experience, right? Some people might be, this, this is their first job out of college and they're going to need a lot more hands-on support than someone who's you know been doing this for longer or whatever, or maybe knows the space really well. And so I definitely think more and more I, I've started to ascribe to, you know, it really helps for leaders to feel very comfortable being hands-on in the work. And I think I used to think it was only about people management and have evolved that for sure until, no, it's absolutely both. You definitely need to have a perspective on your product. You definitely need to find that balance and you know figure out how to make sure that you know you're all operating from the same goal which is it's successful people use it it's working well and whatever tactics you need to use to get to that goal i think are worth exploring so i've, I've yeah i think it's shifted for sure and you know granted now fast forward and, and you know the big figma design team is probably 60 65 people and i can't <laughs> there's no way i'm going to be hands on with every project with every person so you know you just sort of figure out well what are your priorities? What are the things that you can focus on and or think you know you need to be? And that can come from you, that can come from your boss, that can come from wherever, but whittling it down to like, okay, at least this quarter, you know, it's going to be AI for me. And I'll lean into those projects a lot because I think the company needs it. And then maybe a, a different quarter, it might be a different kind of thing to lean into. So that kind of has definitely evolved over time. You um you said the F word. No, Figma in this case. <laughs> I'm going to uh, it out, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, we were automatically kind of already going into the direction of like you starting your role at Figma. It's been over six years now. A lot has changed. The team has grown tremendously. I think around like the 2016, 17 mark, kind of when you joined, it was the time of still sketch and Figma was slowly becoming the kind of default Walk me kind of through your time at Figma because I think that like, have you talked about this publicly yet? I think it would be really interesting. Probably no, I don't think I have actually because um, because it's an extremely important time in digital design, and so I'd love to hear kind of like a little bit of the inside perspective on that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'd love to talk about it. I felt like over the six years, it's honestly been like almost a different job every quarter, every you know six months. It's been a different challenge. So let's start from the beginning, right? So. I had been using Figma when I was actually at ClassPass. It had just come out. It was still kind of a free product. And I was just like, I was really into experimenting with new tools. And, you know, obviously I'd loved using all kinds of tools before that. And I had asked the whole ClassPass design team, hey, can we try this out? I wasn't going to like dictate that we all use it, but we kind of came up with these really fun ways of using it. You know, and so at the time, just for some context, yeah, that I don't think there was prototyping yet in Figma, but they had just launched collaboration. <laughs> like you could just start mm -hmm. with each other. And we had, for example, a, a problem where we had different maps in different cities and we couldn't just programmatically generate them because the density never felt quite right. There were 50 cities or something ClassPass supported and we had a design team of six people and, and an engineer was like, hey, can you help us? We actually need to ship this like next week. We all jumped into Figma and each took a region <laughs> and mm -hmm. designed these maps to make them feel like they showed the right density of studios for them. 
And that was like the first time in my career I had a moment like that where what would have taken me probably six hours was not only twice as much fun and saved us way much more time than we would have had spending doing this independently. It also made it better. Like you'd look over the other side of the file and someone else had a clever way of like making a map pin work. Mm -hmm. And so it was just, it was so invigorating and so much fun. And then, you know, maybe a couple of months later, Dylan, the uh, founder of CEO of Figma had called me to say, hey, we're going to start charging money for this thing and you guys are using it a lot. So just want to check in on that. Is that going to be okay? Are you guys going to pay us? Mm -hmm. It was like $4 a month per person. We were you know, about 200 person company, five, six designers. And I sent a, an email to the company and said, hey, like to the whole ClassPass you know, or tech organization at least and said something like, if you want a license, it's going to be $4 a month now at the time. That's what it cost. Just put your name on the spreadsheet. We'll buy it. And I think I had expected like five or 10 people to maybe do that. Like 80 people put their name on that spreadsheet, mm-hmm. support people, sales people, marketing people. And we bought all those licenses. And I think probably for like a day, it was like Figma's top paid customer nice. uh, being this random you know, company. And so that kind of started my journey into the company. You know, They sent an engineer, uh, Ryan, out to watch us work. And I was like, what? This company sent an engineer to talk to us? And, and meanwhile, I think before that, I was used to like talking to salespeople about design tools only. And, and this felt like just change of pace where this engineer would ask all kinds of questions about how it worked. They would file bugs on the spot. And I, after meeting Dylan and seeing him do that too, or every time I would mention a bug, he would diligently file it. I was like, there's something here. So Anyway, I fast forward, I moved back to San Francisco. They were looking for their first design manager and it was a really great fit. I actually did a, a week-long kind of journey with them before I took the job to just explore whether I would do the management route or the IC route even. Took like an onboarding project done, but also led a crit. And after the first week, I remember being like, oh, this is a cool place. There was about that, you know, probably, I don't know, 25 or 30 people at the company, but each person I met, and at that stage of a company, you're meeting everyone. I was so, I just wanted to work with them. I was like, there's something about this. So so I took that job and my first six months of that job were all over the place. <laughs> they were, they were, cause you know, your, your early stage startup, you know, sketch was by far the dominant tool at that time. Most people were not using Figma and Dylan was really good at like basically knocking on doors at companies being like, will you try it? Do you want to check it out? I just want feedback. Let's like, you know. And so I remember a lot of my job was actually kind of sales in a way. It was actually meeting with companies, but also in a way you're doing research and support and you're doing a bit of everything. And I think that was really cool and fun for me and new for sure. I hadn't really quite done that before. And I really enjoyed it because I also liked talking to people. I liked talking to designers. And I also, you know, there was a point in my career where I thought maybe I would want to work at an agency because I loved a variety. And I felt like this job was letting me do a bit of everything because I was meeting with design teams from different industries, doing different things and getting to learn about how they work and seeing how we can support them. So it really felt like a dream role for me and just like a really great fit. But it was also really hard because I was supposed to do IC work. I was working on like our first enterprise product at the time in our file browser and also hire a team, right? There were like just two designers full time at the time and one contractor. And so I had to, that was really the mandate was like, we need you to help grow this team. We think this is going to get some adoption. We're seeing some traction. And I had the hardest time those first six months because like I was balancing everything. Again, I was, I still didn't learn the lesson of class pass. I was saying yes to it all. And but, you know, found some traction, found some people, grew the team a bit, and it really started to kind of take off. Lots of companies were who I never expected. I remember going to, speaking of Brian Chesky, I remember going to the Airbnb offices and I went with Rasmus, an amazing designer who was, was there at the time. And, and we were thinking about what we could do with this, with Airbnb. And we had this idea of what if we made a game? What if we like made like SimCity? Because it's, you know, what about Figma? It's special. It's the idea of making something as a team. But you don't get to really try that when you're talking to companies who are, you know, you have like an hour with them and they're trying to imagine potentially switching tools. And that's a huge cost to do that. There's just so much muscle memory. And so we had this thought of, well, what if we 
make a game. <laughs> and instead of being like, hey, we need you to move your design system and everything over, which is going to stress anyone out who thinks about it, we would just have fun for an hour. And of course, along the way, pitch it a bit and be like, hey, we think this is a cool product. We think you should try it. It was so fun. We split the Airbnb design team at the time, or at least the 30 or so people in that room into two teams. I think pages had just launched in Figma. And so we each had a page and Rasmus made this really meticulously drawn, you know, really well done map of a road system and other kinds of stuff. And we just played and we just put on some tunes. Like people started dropping like emojis of a fire truck in the other city to kind of, you know, or whatever and, and play with it. And I think it, it did a lot. I don't think we realized at the time how much that did to help the products get adopted because you weren't assessing it as, hey, we're going to move your entire, it's if I told you, hey, you know, your entire kitchen, I'm going to reorganize it for you. And you're going to have to just use that tomorrow. <laughs> You'll be probably pretty stressed. Like you have mm-hmm. to get to work. You need to cook your meal. But if instead you were just like, let's jump to a really fun moment and relax a bit and see what this feels like, it would be a different conversation. Anyway, that that's you know one version of my job at Figma was like building a team, trying to get this thing adopted. But you fast forward over the years and we can zoom into whatever part of it you're interested in, but it definitely shifted into phases of like just strictly mostly just hiring maybe for a bit, or maybe it was once things got adopted a lot. For example, for the first two years of the company, we we're really just playing catch up with Sketch, right? There were just features after features that we needed to build. And mm-hmm. so most of our responsibility was like pretty obvious. You pretty much just needed to like, hopefully do something novel and innovative and interesting, but also literally just support blend modes or whatever the thing was that like just yeah, didn't just happen. table stakes, yeah. And then you get to a point in the company where all of a sudden you blink your eyes and you are a bit of a market leader now and there aren't as many companies to look to at, at the, you know, in the moment to feel like you're, you know, they're showing you the way of what you need to do and you need to start becoming that person. And that's a different muscle, like coming up with a product roadmap or collaborating to figure that out. It's no longer just like you do X, you do Y, you Z, and then you're good. It's more like, okay, what, what do we think we need to do? And that was just, you know, at the time, maybe Figma, when we first had to ask those questions, I don't know, it's probably like two, 300 people maybe in the company. And yeah, you just, it's just a different skill set. So I think that was the kind of pivot or at least one of the chapters was like, what does that look like to take, you still have a fire hose of requests, don't get me wrong, even today we still have, you know, and that's, I think, led a lot of success to the company was just listening to those requests. But you also know that you can't just do that. And if you do that, you could get leapfrogged at some point by some other company. And so you have to have a bit of a perspective of like where the industry is going and, you know, do a combination of both listening to people, but also watching their behaviors and what they're sort of not telling you directly, but they're using. And so that, for example, led to Fig Jam, which is a whole other thing to talk about. But so anyway, yeah, it's a wild six years. Like it's still extremely, you know, every day feels different in a way. I'm, I feel extremely lucky that I still enjoy what I do and enjoy this amazing team. But yeah, it's had a lot of chapters to it. So much to dig into here. And I'm actually really excited at the opportunity I want to dig into the hiring thing a bit. But before we get there, immediately as you were talking, I was like, okay, at a certain point, you make the fig jam decision. How did that come to be? Because you're definitely like, you're working on, here's a request, the competitor has it, we're going to add it, here's our stack rank of like how we're going to work through these. And you also had this like tidbit of information from ClassPass where non-designers were in this tool. Mm-hmm. And so what was the moment that FigJam, like FigJam seems to be the place that makes Figma or the Figma universe more accessible Mm -hmm. to non-designers. 
I think that when we then fast forward and we look at what was announced at config last this mm-hmm. year, I already think that it's 2024. Um, some of the developer kind of angle to everything seems to be a really big theme within the company. But what was that fig jam moment? Like who, what, where, <laughs> when? Yeah. Was there whiskey involved? You know, who, <laughs> when, when was the call made? Definitely all of those things. So we did a lot of, you know, people call them hack weeks, whatever we call them maker weeks. And we do them twice a year. And even just before the pandemic, I think there had always been, you know, we had been using Figma for way more than just product design. We had been, we actually Rasmus designed this sticky note in Figma. I think even like that first year um, that I joined and we used it to plan. We used it to come up with processes and hiring practices. And we also saw other companies do this as well. They were using um, Figma for a lot more than just product design. And so this is interesting, right? Because it wasn't like our customers were telling us like, hey, you need to build us a brainstorming tool. I don't think we had very many people requesting that. But we did see ourselves using it this way. We did see our customers using this way. And so fast forward to maybe 2019, there was a, like a Hack Week project where we said, well, what if we actually did make like a, a tool for this? And a couple of people, Sawyer and Jenny and a few others had explored what that could look like and Ryan. And, and we built a, a version internally, like a really lightweight one that pretty much all it did was get rid of the left sidebar of mm-hmm. layers, get rid of the right sidebar properties. And it was pretty much just that. And then change the gray background to like a dot grid. And everything else was kind of the same. But it was kind of amazing to all of a sudden have this like hugely open canvas that no longer was trying to tell you what it was for the moment you get to it. You open a frame tool and it tells you. You don't have to name your layers. You don't have to name your layers. That alone, that did it. And we started just using it internally a lot. And I really think that was one of the first moments where we were like, whoa, we should really stop this. It, It truly wasn't a product of, hey, everyone, we're building a brainstorming tool. Let's go. It certainly got to that, but it actually was more of like an internal experiment or Maker Week project that I think started to kind of get us really excited. And to your point, like we've long felt that design is a collaborative process that it does, you know, we get the best products in the world when people can contribute to it together. And we also saw that only like 30%, and this has been true for a while, of our active users are designers. Like the majority of people coming into this tool aren't. And so things just kind of started to pick up. And uh, Jenny, who's an incredible designer, was staffed to be the first basically like full-time designer on the project. And she had been with us maybe a year or so at the time working on other kinds of projects. And we did a couple design sprints. We had a ton of fun like exploring what different UIs could look like, what the was the focus about diagramming? Was it about sticky notes and brainstorming? Was it about meetings? You know, we kind of knew all of those things, but we still needed to focus. And so we just kind of started changing up the toolbar and trying different things. And then, of course, the pandemic happens. Mm-hmm. And that accelerated things a lot because we didn't have a physical whiteboard anymore, right? We, we no longer had a way to do it. So we got, in a way, really lucky because it wasn't like the pandemic happened. We saw this opportunity and we jumped at it. It was actually like we had just been playing with this idea and all of a sudden there was a need for it, like that 10x what we would have ever thought could have happened. And so we really started kind of, yeah, kind of growing that team, like doing more with it and putting it to a beta and having people, you know, that's a big part of our process is not only internally trying things, but also getting other companies to use it and give us feedback as they're going. And yeah, it just became a a huge way the way we started working. I could have never guessed that 
I wouldn't, you know, different companies have different cultures of you're a document centered company, like the Amazon press release, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're like Apple, you're like a keynote and presenting kind of stories kind of company. And I don't know at that time if, if Figma had refined its process that much. We're probably like 300, 400 people maybe at the company at this point. But sure enough, soon uh, after getting a beta enough that was working, we started having all of our meetings in FigJam. And my job as a manager was almost exclusively living in that tool, curating processes, ideas, documenting things. And I think we really started enjoying that because it was no longer like the type of meeting where someone was presenting at you. Instead, it was more like this jam session and this like collaborative thing. It started doing pretty well. Like people started getting excited about it. And and that also is a very different experience for the company because Figma is a very bottoms up adopted tool. A designer requests it, they ask their manager, they get budget for it, they use it. Big Jam is a different market, right? Miro is generally adopted by IT administrators who are signing a contract for the entire organization. Mm -hmm. And so Figma, we didn't really have to sell it to other parts of the organization, right? It was just pretty much like the designer wanted it, they got the budget for it, and it was meant for that department, so it worked. FigJam is a different process. It's a different motion. It's a different kind of product. And so we're learning a ton as we go about it and about what the trade-offs companies are making when they're using it. And that's super exciting. And then even internally, we had started talking about what are the design philosophies or whatever about each of these products, Figma and FigJam, and how are they different? So I remember, because we before that, we just had principles and ideas of what Figma was supposed to be. And it was supposed to be precise and almost like sometimes surgical or you know, a very particular feel. And FigJam, if you've used it, is much more like playful and like vibrant and colorful. And that's a kind of a different almost type of designer that might want to work on that or a different kind of approach that your team might take in prioritizing features for it. We're no longer like in Figma, we like to say we want to get out of your way and focus on the canvas, focus on, you know, your work. In FigJam, we're actually kind of playing with you as a first party. We're like making the elements that you're using, whether it's a sticky note or a you know, or making a diagram, like you need us to help you in making those things. We're not like as unopinionated in a way. So anyway, it's, and then fast forward to what you mentioned at config and developers and dev mode and that too, right? That's another audience. It's another use case that we think is extremely important. And it's funny, you know, in the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about my experience working with Dan and the engineering team at Google. And it kind of reminds me like, that's it's kind of exciting when you can build a product that can embrace that collaboration, that can pull people in to help you work on something together. So yeah, there's a lot of exciting things to dig into there. So, so many directions to take this. And before we actually start converging on things, I actually want to diverge one level further, which is Figma's impact on studying and on colleges. And, and I know that there's been a big push to have much younger folks use the, the suite of tools that you've built. How do you guys look at that versus you know bringing the whole company together in collaborative whiteboarding on the FigJam side, doing the precision design work from, for the designers, and then increasing or improving the quality of handoff to engineering on that side, which is more the building side. Uh, and then also just bringing this to a audience that you know, isn't doesn't have the IT. Well, technically, I guess colleges do have the IT teams. <laughs> yeah. So like, how does that work? Yeah. We've always had an interest, obviously, in, in helping people learn design and helping them learn how to express themselves visually. We have a small team that focuses on education specifically, someone named Lauren and, and someone named 
Miggy and it's a growing team doing all kinds of great stuff. And it's been really interesting to see what happens as schools are having a new tool for people to express themselves and for people to learn concepts in an interactive way. You know, I don't know about you. When I grew up, we were learning in textbooks and you were, maybe sometimes you weren't even supposed to write in the textbook. And so, (laughs) and maybe you're looking at like a projector and you're like watching it, but you're certainly not like, maybe there's worksheets, but you don't really feel like you're definitely doing those worksheets independently. And I think that there's something really cool about seeing schools. We started with universities, but we've since um, looked more at K through 12 in a wider range. Uh, And schools that also, by the way, like, you know, have Chromebooks for their students. And it it would be hard to previously in a different, you know, time to afford these tools. And by making it free and easier for people, they can try it out. And And you have to install them. Yeah, you have to install them, you do the stuff. And this is just there. It's just a website. You go there and it's just from day one. One of the coolest things, I think, though, is seeing how people learn and seeing how people try these things. And you have schools where you have students with learning disabilities, or uh, maybe they have different orientations of learning, right? Some people are visual learners. Some people are auditory learners. And seeing someone like get to learn as a group and you feel a little less scared or alone because if you weren't during the worksheet, right, you know, what do you do when you're a kid? Do you like look off of other people's worksheets? I feel like you're not really supposed to do that or they tell you that's cheating. But it turns out that People actually can, I think, learn a lot faster in different ways if they have access to the way that other people are looking at something, whether that's biology and something for a science class or a history lesson. If you can see the map being drawn with you and in front of you and and annotate, whatever, there's something special about that. So I feel, you know, yeah, it's definitely been very exciting to see how students are using it at different ages and different things and feeling just like uninhibited and creative. And, you know, when I first actually interviewed at Figma, at the time, I was debating between three different kinds of roles we were talking about. And one of them was an education-focused one, because I just think it's fun. It's fun to, to see people learn something and, and the, the look on their face when they make something. You know, we talked in the beginning of the podcast about deviant art, and like you create this digital thing in the world, and all of a sudden, you're like, oh my God, I can, you feel capable. You feel like confident almost. And I would love for people, more people in the world to have that feeling where they're just like, you know, they feel like they can do stuff. They feel like they're not told they have to live in a box and do one particular thing. They can have a blank canvas and get creative with it. So yeah, it's, it's a super fun part of the job for sure. It's not a huge part of my personal role, but I enjoy like hearing the anecdotes and seeing the different types of learners, as I mentioned earlier, have a way to say, Hey, I, you know, if you had a student who was lost in the project, can you help them? Because all of a sudden you see that they are in the file versus just as, you know, maybe noticing later. So I don't know, there's a lot of cool moments like that where people can draw what they're feeling, for example, or kinds of stuff like that. So yeah, and in another world or another life, I would love to spend most of my time looking at that stuff. It and it connects a little bit to what you mentioned about the Montessori thing, you know, at Google where uh, my my high school was a Montessori school, which is kind of like a weird, it was kind of this um this like experimental way of doing like a high school in the Netherlands, we do middle school and high school together. So you're done with elementary school, then you do four or five or six years, depending on like what you want to go into later. If you want to go to a university, you do six years. If you want to go into a university of applied sciences, you do five years, et cetera. And the interesting part about the core concept of this high school was we are going to, you're going to have longer days on school, but any gap that you would normally have we have a whole floor for you to just go work. Wow. You can just go sit. It's like, it's not even a library, just like a floor with desks and tables and you can just go do your own thing. And so they, you're 12 and they're telling you, hey, you're going to have homework. You're going to have like 40 minutes that you're not going to be in a class. 
I mean, do with it what you will, but we have this space where you can go do work. And I think that was a very important aspect in my brain of like, oh yeah, I have control over my time and what my day looks like. And I'm a 12 year old, which is very interesting because we didn't give you those different ways of working yet. The only access was, how are you going to do your homework? Basically, Mm -hmm. Something that I hadn't thought about until you were saying, okay, you have this multiplayer ability to work on things together. You work in little groups is that at least the way I went to school, the way I went to like elementary school and high school and in some cases college, although in college I had the same type of DNA of the course where a lot of it was you have six weeks of studying and then you have three weeks of a project. Before that, everything is about individualism. Mm -hmm. Everything is about you're learning this thing and you're getting this grade against everyone else in the class and and then you like are like kind of trying to compare yourself and contrast and you're not really learning together the only way that you're learning together is it was like 30 to 1 with a teacher <laughs> or like you're or there's no group work or not a lot of group work and then you go across the hall and you go to the music class and there people are creating something together and it's like wait wait a minute that that's like that's pretty ex- you're just, you need to be harmonious you need to figure out how to how to make something together so i Yeah, I think that's fascinating to think about what can we learn from different, you know, whether it's the Montessori school or a different type of class within a class, like how do we get people experiencing the range of things? Because, you know, the truth is you also need independent moments and independent time to explore your own pursuits and build some, you know, conviction of what you want to create. But you also, we live in a world where everything around us is not made by a single person alone, right? Everything is being made by a group of people. And I wish that we learned more of those schools and more of those skills in schools where that was a big focus. And, you know, not to say that there aren't group projects when you're growing up, there for sure are, but I feel like there's so much about what it takes to like work with other people that we just kind of have to learn on the job. And maybe you're lucky and you have a manager who can tell you, Hey, you're not working so well with other people. And hopefully a teacher tells you that early on if you're yeah. not. And you're open um, to it. You yeah. Know, and you're, yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's a whole other world of like, how do we teach people collaboration? What would that even look like? That would be an interesting, you know, you learn psychology, stuff like that, maybe in some schools, but. The, the, the interesting thing that you're kind of like getting at, like for me, so the moments that we were doing this project work and that we were working in groups in college, that was like my bread and butter. Like anything related to tests, it was like, you know, C's, D's. <laughs> you don't like, want to know my SAT scores. Or like, like B's and C's or whatever. I don't need, like we do zero to 10. But as soon as like the project would come along, I was like, okay, how can I hijack this, this brief into trying and figuring out something new to do? You know, like how can we do some wild random like calculation stuff in action script and put something on a screen that nobody else would do and and sometimes that was appreciated by the teachers and sometimes that wasn't (laughs) but you know like at least you're kind of making it your own yeah and and i do feel that that's like a big struggle right now in education and especially to proliferate that to everyone you know we were on the internet in a time where playing around was quote-unquote safe sure there were like bad actors on the internet, but technology wasn't so intertwined in our lives. And so kind of, we were kind of in the sandbox that may have some bad stuff going on it, but a lot of the sandbox was basically you can opt in or opt out of it. Nowadays, I mean, most of tech is opt in. You know, if you, the, I had the realization like two weeks ago that I didn't have my phone on me and therefore I couldn't look at the menu because I didn't have a QR code reader. <laughs> Interesting problem. And so all of the good parts of being on the internet and the 
exploratory part of it being on it in like the early 2000s, late 90s, in a way, kind of rhyme in a tool like Figma and FigJam, where if you give folks access to it and the access is free, and it's, it is a playground where you can do whatever you want, where you can facilitate whatever you want, and you give them enough guidance, you actually create this canvas where you can change the way that people learn, you can change the way that people create things together. And I really like I like that future, mm-hmm. you know, where you create those spaces because it's kind of like the opposite of the dystopian, oh my God, all the kids are in front of their iPads the whole time. <laughs> it takes that and weaponizes it into a positive direction. Yeah, bringing people together. But there's always a challenge, right? Where the the flip side to anything, right? When you also invite everyone into a file or a bunch of, you know, sixth, seventh graders, uh, one of the com- common issues we have is everyone starts drawing on the canvas when the teacher's trying to teach. Mm-hmm. And so... There are all kinds of requests we get, of course, and you know, locking the file down for certain moments and making sure that people aren't too loud in that space. And that can happen in a physical space where someone takes up all the, the air in the room, but it can also happen in a digital one where someone is constantly putting their cursor in front of yours or something or, or changing your object. Trying to high five you while you're talking. <laughs> totally. But the truth is, you know, these are all inevitable parts of working with people. And so, you know, there's always trade-offs. There's always going to be hard things about it. But I certainly want to live in the world where a lot of what we do is still working with other people, like you said, that isn't in the, was it like Wally or the thing where you're like, just, yeah, you're in a chair looking at something and most of your life is that. Was it Idiocracy or something? Yeah. Was it, what was it, Wally? I, I, maybe both. Yeah, I have to rewatch them or something. But yeah, I don't want that. You know, I, easily the most fun part of any job I have is like the energy I get from other people. You know, it's just, I actually, I'm even, I'm really bad at like personal projects. Like if I don't have someone else, you know, with a reason to like work together, I pretty much procrastinate it entirely and never get it done. But when I'm with the team, I just, things just kind of happen. I I like that you said that because for the years that I wasn't doing it and I was like self-conscious about, oh, another podcast, quote unquote, as soon as I got to the point of, hey, this is a great reason to catch up with folks that I haven't seen in a while, case in point. Yeah, it became like the kind of value trade off for me and keeping it going. Like, I'm not just keeping this going for myself because I'm really bad at keeping things going just for myself. Yep, it's way more important for me to keep it going for you know folks that I want to give a stage to or like folks that I know are now listening and have some level of expectation of hey, there's like something cool potentially that. I can go to the gym and listen to, or I can be on my commute and listen to, et cetera. Totally. And each of your episodes has a completely different flavor to it in a way, right? Like you get to both bring yourself into it and how you want to, you know, express a conversation and what elements you like to focus on. But inevitably, each of your guests will probably have a different, you know, a different shape to that conversation. And so that makes it exciting too, I think. There's kind of two two things that I want to touch on and then kind of maybe open the floor if there's something else that you want to talk about. You mentioned, you know, like working with other people. That's like the thing that keeps you going. There's two angles to this. One of them that I sometimes meander on about a little too much, probably on this podcast. But at first, I want to kind of dig into the hiring part Mm. because you mentioned there's 60 ish people like on the design team. How large is Figma as a whole? Uh, Good question. Maybe 1,300 or so. Okay. Yeah. So one is like when you were growing this team, what were some of your principles and like kind of approaches to that? And then the other one is Figma is a tool that really empowers remote work and that really empowers working together in a where you don't necessarily have to sit together. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like you also really enjoy being in a room with folks mm-hmm. and working through things. And like, how do you think about the whole remote thing? And I know that Figma has like very strong hub offices in the US. 
How do you think about that? So let's start about the hiring first. Sure. And I'd love to like hear kind of how you grew the team. Obviously, you started with some really bad talent in Rasmus. <laughs> that was a really hard person to work with, of course. Um, no. <laughs> how, how did you kind of grow from that? Yeah. So hiring is so much fun, right? If we're talking about the best part of work is working with other people and hiring is really what brings those people together. That's a really exciting opportunity. I feel like early on, I learned a lot from Saleo here, who many people here might know, um, who mentioned like, if you did nothing else as a leader, if you hire amazing people, like you'll never regret that. Like that's probably the most impactful thing you could really do. And I feel like I've really tried to take that to heart in, as we grow this team and take it as a huge responsibility, which is actually kind of hard because typically it's the only thing in your job that you aren't often getting a lot of pressure. Sometimes you might, but like there are all these other things that come at you, requests and things. But hiring is one of those things where you actually have to like proactively make space in your calendar to do it and to talk to people and to build relationships, to build a process around it. When meanwhile, you have product reviews and all kinds of stuff, you're designing things. It's always hard to make space for it. And I feel like it's the first thing that sometimes drops. And I suffer from that even now. Like I still sometimes I'm like, oh, I should have spent that time doing this instead of that. But anyway, um, we spent a lot of time thinking about what we wanted as a team. We knew we had a bunch of shared values about building a team that had different perspectives and, and had um, come from different backgrounds. And But we also had, you know, at every company I've worked for, a different set of things that uh, make for a great designer. So at ClassPass, for example, you know, Brand and visual design were actually kind of a big deal for people taking classes. And that skill set and also the skill set of presenting was particularly meaningful. At Figma, at least in the beginning, there was a lot of unique challenges of try to design auto layout. <laughs> like it's a really interesting and hard problem. And if you're not, if you don't have a technical background, it, it might actually be pretty hard because most of what you're doing is building on like layout constructs that have existed in CSS and otherwise for a long time. So for some areas of the product, while we haven't like explicitly stated it's a requirement to have a CS degree or something, we've noticed by concentrating people with technical backgrounds, it actually helped us a lot. But we knew that for other parts of the product, FigJam or otherwise, it wasn't actually critical. Like You could totally design an incredible experience without necessarily coding it yourself or not understanding that. So, the, so we, what we basically do is each role, we sit down and we clarify, what do we really believe that we need in this? And if you're hiring for one thing, it might be one skill set. And we now we actually make a FigJam file for the most part for any role we spin up. And we have a sort of a one main file that like has all the kinds of content you would need if you're both for internal purposes of what we look for, but then also we actually use this with candidates along the way. But in that file, we really spell out like what are the three most critical skills. And as much as you can generalize, and we still do sometimes, you need a sense of craft and what that means, or you need to be a great communicator for this particular project or something. Having the nuance or the space to say, well, what is, what's unique about this one is actually kind of helpful and it pulls it out from the process a bit. It makes it easier for your recruiters and sourcers too, to know what you're looking for. So doing that helped us a lot, kind of spelling out you know, those skills early on and being really clear with candidates about it and not just letting it sit on a job description, but having it be more open what you're looking for, publicizing it. Like we have all the stuff we open source, like on the Figma community. If you go to, I put a lot of it at figma.com slash at Levin, you'll see like all of our, you know, career ladder, our hiring practices, our the way that we approach things, and more and more, we found it's mutually beneficial to to be completely on the same page about what you need, and so the candidate experience too, they can look at it and say, like, oh yeah, that I can see myself in that or not. And the more that that feels like a clear, consistent culture or something, the easier it becomes for everyone. So yeah, over the years, you know, it's changed where I was personally responsible for hiring, you know, maybe ICs and then managers. 
And now it might not be the case that I'm personally hiring as much, right? I had to shift my world into helping managers hire people. And that's different too, because then what if every manager has a totally different perspective of what great looks like? And on the one hand, that's good because you want to build a diverse team. You want to build a team that can operate in different ways. On the other hand, it makes it hard sometimes to interview or to have a consensus about what's working and what isn't because different groups have different perspectives. So you're kind of threading that needle a lot and putting together a shared set of what we think great at Figma looks like, as well as letting the managers have some space to say, well, I, I need this kind of skill set for developer mode or this kind of thing for this area that I'm working in. So I, don't, I think it's a really fun and hard problem. It's been you know, a privilege for sure to, to now, I think when we started, it was really hard to hire people because no one wanted to work at a startup. It, it was too risky or whatever. And now that we have traction and, and things are going well, like it's a different kind of way of recruiting. You're doing a lot less like outbound than you used to be and a little bit more, well, we've got a lot of interesting, exciting candidates and how do we sift through it? So it's looked very different, honestly, each six months or each kind of chapter. But the most wonderful privilege I feel like I could be a part of is like seeing what happens then when you have an offsite or whatever with all these amazing people and see them jam with each other and see them grow and take off in their career in different fun directions. And that's just so, I don't know, it's very energizing to like see what happens when a team gets together and builds something and that you could play a small role in that. So you said Figma roughly has 1,200, 1,300 people, roughly 60 designers. On the one hand, you're like, wow, that's a lot of designers. But on the other hand, that's, that's quite a few amount of designers for a design tool and for something that has so much functionality. You mentioned your relationship at Google with engineering, and you also mentioned having an engineer from Figma come sit with you at ClassPass. How much of the design responsibility actually also falls onto engineering mm. at a company like Figma? Oh my goodness. So there's engineering and there's also product management, which didn't mm -hmm. exist for the first two years I was at the company and or maybe a year and a half or so and has grown also as a, I think there's probably about 40 or so or maybe. So there's still a lot, you know, there's still more designers than PMs, but what is that responsibility in a design oriented product, right? How do you figure out how all of these three roles work together? Um, and this comes up a lot where, you know, we're very lucky to have engineers who joined a company that they knew was a design tool and thus had some probably inherent interest in it. They could have had interest in just like the technical graphical challenges of a you know, web interface like this. But a lot of times they actually might have considered a career in design and happened to go one way or the other or just choose engineering for whatever reason. And so it really can change in different projects. Some examples might be like, what about the experience of loading a Figma file? You might not think there's like a lot of design that goes into that problem, but obviously there is. And there's the intersection of technical challenges. If you have different pages, do you preload those different pages? When do you load them? How does that show up? Do you like, do you have to block the interface if it's not loaded yet? That's never a great feeling. And so those types of projects, especially, it's always really great to either have an engineer who has a perspective on it or to have, in our case, uh, Jackie, one of the designers who works on that has a technical background and that's been really helpful So you can prototype different versions of feeling something out like that. So some projects either due to just the person on the project and having an interest in it or the nature of the problem being more technical, that'll get blurry. I'm a big believer in like blurry lines and not hard ones between roles and that it's often hard for people. I'm sure a lot of designers even listening to this podcast have probably had to make tough calls and like, wait, do I join as a front end engineer? Do I join as a designer? And, and it, it's not a very great feeling to tell a candidate, well, you have to pick. Mm -hmm. Because they ultimately yeah. want to do all of it in a way. And, and sometimes the larger the company, the harder that can be. I think we've done a pretty good job having a lot of our designers and engineers like kind of trade places almost in different places. And, and same for, you know, designers playing PM roles or PM, you know, PMs designing things like it's really quite fluid. And 
I prefer that. I feel like the best work happens when people don't feel like they have a really hard boundary behind what they're supposed to do. And so you asked about Fig Jam, right? So like Alice, Sawyer, a lot of the people working on that did come up with a lot of the design for it too along the way. And some of those choices they made, even in like details, like the sticky note that the edge curls as you drag it onto the screen, like it's unlikely a designer is going to implement that feature. They could probably mock it up. They could put it in After Effects, whatever, but you need the engineer to care about it or make it smooth and, and prioritize it. And so those are really the fun projects and moments is when like people get to like influence each other's work a bit and feel like they can do that. But yeah, it is hard when you're talking to the candidates and they're like, do I interview for both? And sometimes they do. We've had that. Mm -hmm. We've had it go in many different directions. I wouldn't have it any other way. I think it's just a lot of fun when you feel like you can... Same for like, I feel, for example, you know, I have a, a very light technical background. It's not super deep, just enough to like, you know, we talked about our shared background in like Framer stuff and JavaScript. So I sometimes feel like self-conscious if I'm contributing feedback in a, about a technical, you know, aspect or or putting together a prototype where I know the code is like extremely janky. Mm -hmm. Even though I might have pause in sharing that feedback, I rarely regret it. I feel like when you work with great people, they don't make you feel bad for contributing in their domain. And I think that's a problem for a lot of designers, especially, right? Where you get feedback on design, you're like, well, they're not, they don't have that background and mm -hmm. they don't know for sure. But if you have an open mind, it goes both ways. Like where if I give feedback on, one example would be like, you click a button and something should immediately happen. And if it doesn't, if there's like a lag or a delay, you lose trust pretty quickly with the system. And, and that's one of these things where is that a design detail? Is that an engineering detail? Uh, how do you talk about that? I remember Glenn Murphy was the head of design for Chrome for a while and used to talk about like light switches. And if you flip a light switch and the lights don't go on for a little bit, you immediately don't want to flip that light switch again. You don't really trust that it's going to work. Mm -hmm. But there's this inevitable reality that loading things takes time and that you have to create those experiences even though I might not know all of the exact details of how to implement something correctly, that it like progressively loads something in the right ways, that doesn't mean I shouldn't speak up about it or feel comfortable you know, highlighting it to a team. And so even though you might have an uncomfortable feeling of, am I speaking the same language correctly? Inevitably, you want to get to the right place anyway. And so as long as you feel like those conversations can happen at the company and not feel like you're getting a slap on the wrist for having that conversation or something, then I think you'll get better products because you're, you're building something smoother. If you didn't know the exact how of it, it still got to a better place. And so a lot of features you've all used, if you're listening to this and you use Figma, you can rest assured have been you know, designed by a combination of engineers, designers, product managers. Like uh, really, it's just, it's hard to pinpoint sometimes even like where the idea came from or where it started and ended. Yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer that your title shouldn't matter and, and you should just all do whatever you need to do to get the work done. One kind of funky way I've always thought about it is that the reason why I'm a designer by title is because that's what people will hire me for. <laughs> and then as soon as I'm in the door, it actually allows me to look at different things. Yeah. And that's been fun. Even, you know, we've talked a lot about engineering, but what about like earlier in the conversation, we talked about sales or support. And I love that that can be a part of my job, you know, that I can actually learn from incredible salespeople too, that are extremely good in their domains and collaborate with them and say like, oh, like, let's talk about the way that we're pitching this thing and what could that feel like? And, and that's really fun as well. That's kind of the, the hope that you have in a company is that even when it grows, you still feel connected to different functions. I think that's another thing that Brian Chesky talked about in the podcast was like how that's the first thing that breaks in large church companies is the functions stop talking to each other or mm -hmm. marketing doesn't have a reason to talk to product. And so what's fun about being still at a startup, I know 1300 people is not small. 
but being in, in a leadership position, like getting to help with that and getting to say, oh, I, well, Mark, you should talk to marketing or they should come together or I should spend more time with that you know, salesperson over here. So yeah, I think it's not even just engineering. It's fun to think holistically about a product, what it's doing end to end from the moment someone hears about it you know, in a commercial or something to the moment they're like an active user and you're trying to convince them to upgrade or something if that's your path. So there's endless things to get interested in. If anything, I find the harder thing is like where to, where to draw that line or where to realize, okay, actually, that's probably not where I should focus. Yeah. So that kind of leads me to my last question, which is, you know, where, um, where do you see this going in the next couple of years? What are you personally interested in focusing on? And my guess is that's going to be very much at Figma, kind of mentioning the whole like side project thing, needing external support and kind of this feedback loop. What are you excited about looking ahead? Our industry is obviously constantly evolving, constantly changing. And I think you, you know, when I think about like the future of tools or what I want them to feel like, and I absolutely, you know, plan to do that and stay at Figma to do that. I think a lot about obviously AI and what that's, what that looks like. I don't think it has to mean that everything is completely turned upside down and completely different and we should all be scared or worried. That's not really my approach. I've always been really excited and curious about new technology and try to use it wherever I can and play with it and and either way, you're in a creative process. You're creating something. You're thinking about, you know, how am I, regardless of my tools, whatever the tool is, how do I get to some shared solution? And I think a lot about, about a couple of things there. One is that we've already tried to make a shift as designers from not being seen as just like pixel pushers and just like drawing rectangles, despite the amount that we do draw, and really helping companies solve problems and helping them figure out what to do. And, you know, we saw that with design systems where we just didn't want to spend time debating, you know, corner radiuses anymore and instead wanted to help make sure we could speed up the process to creating something. And I think AI is no different. It will absolutely change the way we were making things. I spent this weekend playing with, we have, you know, we're using GPT vision, like the ability to look at an image and, and use that as input for something. You've probably seen this trend going around where you can draw a sketch and turn it into a working app. Mm -hmm. I never thought that would be possible. You know, a couple of weeks ago or months ago, that was a thing that we would be doing. And sure enough, on Saturday, I spent, you know, not that much time sketching up like a concept for a honeymoon app because that's, you know, one of the things that I'm planning and helping it make my decisions. So with this, it was like, wow, these tools are allowing us to create tools on the fly whenever you need them for whatever you're doing. And it's not that it took my job or something. I still felt very much like I was being a part of this process. But I didn't have to code and spend all my time debugging, you know, a comma error or whatever that was listed somewhere. And instead, it was just working with technology differently. So all of this is to say, I do think our tools are going to change a lot in the next even three years, you know, like even the fact that I could do this like on, you know, briefly over the weekend or something is very different than what it could have looked like to do that years ago. But I still think you are constantly in the process of creating something with the team. And the bottleneck becomes if you're creating faster with these tools and it's accelerating your ability to do it you still are going to have challenges, for example, in decision-making. And that's a lot of the other thing I'm thinking about is let's say that your tool can instantly draw whatever it was that you were thinking or sketching or whatever. You still have to decide as a company, is this the right thing? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the future of these things is going to be like that process of making decisions, deciding what to put into the world. That part is still very like much at the, the center of where the bottleneck might happen, mm -hmm. where they still have to figure out how to do that. And that's, again, coming back to a lot of the theme of this podcast together today, working with other people, like mm -hmm. deciding together what that looks like. And so I sometimes, at least personally, I think about what does a decision-making tool look like? Is that the same as a design tool? How might these shift in these different directions when you're, you're more outcomes-focused? This is the problem I'm trying to solve and less screen-focused. That's why a lot of times, even in design reviews at Figma, 
if we're noticing ourselves looking at just a screen for two, like literally like a mock-up of what this tool could look like, we're often trying to say, well, wait, what's the context, obviously, of that screen? What's the end goal we're trying to get to? And even if we've been designing for a long time, it's still easy to get sucked into one screen and like zero in on a detail about it. And I think these tools might help us think in those big pictures somehow, whatever that looks like. So I, there's a lot I'm excited about. I think it's all going to be very interesting. <laughs> there's a lot to do. I remain kind of more of an AI optimist for sure. Mm -hmm. But obviously it's a complex thing and I don't understand probably lots of aspects of these later developments, but you have to just be willing to try and play and see where it takes you. What you're kind of describing makes me think a bit about the first episode I just had with Om Malik where you know, he was talking about kind of the different eras of the web. And at first there's this era for information seeking. And then there's the era of connectivity. And now we're basically like in this new era. And if you're kind of pointing out that instead of, well, well, we had a tool that we drew boxes with. Okay, now we by ourselves. Now we have a tool that we type in together. Now we have a tool that we draw boxes in together. Now we have a tool in which we have whiteboards together. And then sometimes we get a, a poll. And so there's kind of a pre-programmed little app in here. But now we actually have a tool that creates tools. <laughs> and so we go from this point of, you know, starting with a nicely chiseled rock that is effectively like how we carve whatever we hunted open. And then we eat that in this Neanderthal environment to having a screwdriver and a hammer and a bunch of wood. And so you can create a tool with a couple of tools. And the more that that enablement of your tooling grows, the faster you can get to the next solution or, or next thing. And your point of this decision-making tool, there's so much to dig into this because I think it's one of the biggest reasons, like speed of decision-making is one of the biggest reasons, like innovator's dilemma, like companies eventually get disrupted, they get usurped, there's like a new level. There, there's like kind of the next era of companies. Mm -hmm. But then on the flip side of that, the amount of churn and trauma that has come through these thousands, ten thousands of startups that have been mismanaged and like kind of eventually ran out of steam because likely the decision-making process was wrong somehow. Mm -hmm. We didn't get the product market fit. Well, partially that's on decision-making. Mm -hmm. We overspent and now we have to lay all these people off. Now that's partially on decision making. We built a bunch of things like next to our product market fit problem that wasn't in product market fit and we did that for a very mm -hmm. long time. A lot of the tooling that lives in between that right now is still, you know, like designers love to talk about skeuomorphism. Docs are still this like skeuomorphic thing, mm -hmm. right? And so I think, and even the whiteboard canvas in a way is still this like kind of skeuomorphic thing and mm -hmm. it's a free-for-all. But actually like how do we how we focus in our energy and how we all get on the same page of the values and processes that we want to use, but we don't want to over-process things, I think is a really big question. Yeah, and it's hard to say what that future will look like. I do think that there is still a visual element of it, though, because ultimately you're still agreeing on, if you're building software at least, you're still agreeing on something that someone is going to see. And even if it's not bad, even if you're designing, you know, I don't know, like a, a, a process or you know, something that isn't a screen at the end of the day. There's still like this, I always love those memes where you have a picture and people have the different mental bubbles of what the thing they thought it was and how quickly people didn't realize they were actually like arguing either for the same thing or for ultimately different things, but they mm -hmm. thought they agreed. Yep. And so I'm a big believer in tools that 
allow you to visualize the, de- the decision-making process. They allow you to view the trade-offs in a very explicit and clear way. And that's usually for me, like a combination of text and also probably diagrams or other kinds of constructs that let you picture something or prototypes, right? Mm-hmm. And so the more these tools can make it very clear and visceral what you're debating or what you're discussing and leave less to the imagination and even better, pull out customer feedback or other kinds of things faster, the more I think you'll make more informed decisions. And so again, I don't, I don't actually know what some of that future looks like, but, but I do think that's probably what will happen if like, you're not spending your time you know, perfecting that, that pixel or making sure that the, the rectangle is in the right place. And you're instead like being able to make trade-offs of different prototypes off the top of your head. <laughs> A lot faster. Like you're still gonna have three, and you're still gonna have to talk about what they were doing and what the goals of of them were. So yeah, lots to figure out. <laughs> Amazing. I actually think that this is a great thing to end on. We we have a lot ahead of us. I think we're both optimistic about how AI can kind of intertwine and like how we actually are going to build the the tools of the future. So I want to thank you for spending this time with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening. If you aren't a subscriber yet, you should totally check out some of the other episodes. So hit that subscribe button. And if you're looking for some of the top episodes, go to fullstackwhatever.com.